This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Usim, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Anne Greenhall, Deputy Director of the Anne and John McNulty Leadership Program. And tonight I am flying solo. My dear colleagues and friends, Mike Useem and Jeff Klein are off for the evening. But we've got a great show lined up. In the first hour, I'll be talking to Dr. Roberta Krauss. She is president of the Center for Sports Psychology in Colorado Springs, and she works with athletes of all stripes, including some who are, who have competed in the Olympics, and we're going to be talking with her about leadership lessons that can be learned through team sports, including how to perform your best under pressure. So I'd like to welcome our first guest on the phone. Roberta, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ann. I have to tell you, I was so excited about getting a chance to be on your show that I decided, even though we're not visible, I put on my Paralympic gold medal ceremony outfit. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> uh, that we wore when we won the gold medal in 2016, just so I could put my mind in the right frame. <laughs> well, I'm really excited to hear that, and I'm visualizing you in my mind's eye. And I'm hoping our listeners are, too. And by the way, let me just also invite our listeners to call in with a question, and our number here is 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. If you have a question about the relationship between sports and leadership, please join our conversation. Now, Roberta, I'm just going to say a little bit of a word about you, and then I'm sure more of your biography will come out as we as we talk. But let me just say that the Center for Sports Psychology specializes in helping individuals and team develop teams develop mental training strategies that lead to a consistent peak performance. And your international reputation comes from extensive experience with designing and implementing specific mental training programs on the subject of peak performance, team leadership, developmental coaching, group dynamics, communication, burnout, motivation, and resiliency. You were once, uh, or you are currently, in fact, a senior on-call faculty member for the Center for Creative Leadership. So, Roberta, maybe if we go way back, um, I'm assuming, am I right, you were an athlete from a young age? Yes. Um, So, interesting enough, I was like six feet tall in fifth grade, Ah. which made me very uncoordinated, but certainly every coach kind of had their eye on the height that I brought to the sport. And so I was fortunate because of just the offerings that I had at my high school and college, that I was able to play um, all sports, but specialized in basketball and tennis. I played in college at Montclair State University, and at that time, Montclair was one of the top three women's programs in the country for basketball. Mm -hmm. And then after playing in a team sport, because you have team drama, I said to myself, you know, I've got to come back in the fall and like all these women again. I need a break. So I thought, <laughs> I'm going to do an individual sport. And my choices were gymnastics or tennis. 
And at six foot two, I knew gymnastics was off the table. So I went to the tennis coach and said, I want to play your tennis team. And he said, you know, I've seen you play basketball. You will be awesome at the net. He says, you come by my office today, and I'll get you a schedule, a can of balls. We'll get you all set up. So I walk out, and I'm thinking in my head, I am so hot. I'm on the team. I don't even try out. <laughs> and I That's went good. to the coach, and he gave me a schedule, a can of balls. He said, now go play against the wall for a year and come out cheer us on, and I'll see you next season. And so for one full year, I played against the walls, tennis places, and came back and played number one doubles. And proud to say that um, my partner, our record, is going to be a lifetime record at the college because since then they have dropped the tennis program. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I have an undefeated tennis record at my college. <laughs> that is remarkable. And let me add, am I right, that you also earned a spot as an alternate to the women's Olympic basketball team? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's wonderful. And, and that, that's sort of like kissing your brother, no satisfaction, because as an <laughs> alternate, you're like the B team. You scrimmage, you scrimmage, mm. and only unless one of the Olympic players that is on the selected team for international travel gets hurt, uh-huh. uh, you don't go. Okay. <laughs> so a little bit of a, uh, well, not quite a Cinderella story, right. but that has the makings of exactly. a Cinderella story. So now you you said something in passing that I just have to pick up. Did I hear you right? You said that there was a lot of drama on the basketball team, and you needed a little bit of a break. Absolutely. Okay. Can you um, can you tell us a little bit about that drama and what inspired you to take a break and head towards uh, a sport that is uh, less of a team sport? Yeah, and interesting enough, and if you were to ask me to explain that in more detail while I was going through it, I might not have been able to articulate it. But now if you fast-forward going all the way through schooling, Ph.D., and now working in this field for 25 years, I can tell you that, you know, mm-hmm. at times we had team members that perceived there was favoritism, mm-hmm. there was cliques among selected people. At times you felt like team members um, had their mm-hmm. personal goals that conflicted with their team goals, always worried about their stats, yeah. how they look in the paper, who wrote the article about them. Sometimes it didn't seem to have, be having fun together, mm-hmm. um, and it, it just that occurs more on a team just because you have to all buy into a strategy by the coach. Whereas if you're playing a individual sport, like me and my tennis partner for mm-hmm. number one doubles, we had our own strategy that was different than the one who played number one singles in tennis, even though we were all part of the tennis team. Okay. Oh, already I'm I'm already right with you and very interested. Would you say now, looking back on the dynamics of the basketball team that caused you to want to take a break, if you could put your finger on it, is there a way in which you would distill the issue at play? So explain what you mean by well, distill the issue. Yeah, so real- you mentioned a lot. You mentioned yeah. favoritism, clicks. Yeah. Uh, personal statistics. Um, yeah. Why are we are we in this uh, for the whole or in this right. for the individual? You know, you've named a lot. If you yeah. were to just really hone in, is there? Could you pinpoint what you think Absolutely. is at the core? So the clicks, whether they came because the players came out of a prominent high school successful team, and three or four players came from that school to this college. 
whether the cliques were because of your your sexual orientation and choice of lifestyle, or the cliques were because you were on the varsity starting team versus the varsity mm-hmm. bench. But what happened was is the cliques froze out the players on the court that weren't in their clique. Okay, okay. And and now looking back, is there is there something that you would recommend you could do about that? So oh, absolutely. You... In fact, you know, getting a chance now, and the work that I do now, I get a chance to work with at the Olympic, Paralympic, even sometimes professional, but a lot of college teams, uh, athletic directors will bring me in over the summer to teach coaches how to do mental training. Even in individual sports, I'm asked to develop a team concept. And I do a lot of work with teams now where I customize at the start of the season over several sessions, whether you're an individual team sport, we are going to design what we are calling the secret sauce mm-hmm. for this group of athletes for this season this year. And, and what I mean by secret sauce is I will usually do a little education on the front end, and I draw this, this two-by-two two matrix that has four window panes. And on the vertical axis, you've got talent. On the horizontal axis, axis you've got commitment. And I'll draw the boxes, and I'll start out by saying, so let's look down here. Where, what's it like if you have a team member that is low talent and low commitment? <laughs> what do you want those athletes to do? And most of them come with the right answer and say, play intramurals. Okay. Uh, you know, don't come out for the team. Then we move to the right where you've got low talent but high commitment. Mm-hmm. And commitment is all about – the, both the teaming and relating with the players. Well, that's a dream come true for a coach because you're just waiting to be molded by the more senior players in the team, by the coach, and you're just raw talent. That's a dream come true for coaches. When you go to the top left quadrant of this two-by-two, you've got high talent and low commitment. Mm-hmm. That's the high-maintenance problem athlete for the coach and the team. Mm-hmm. And, and and most coaches that are out recruiting, especially at a Division One school, you know, will be real clear that if you can't be more team-like and about us before I, this isn't a place for you. And then that top quadrant would be high talent, high commitment, and that's where we want to go. So the high talent is something that I expect that you have the right coaches on your staff, the coaches have recruited the right athletes, and the coaches know how to develop the skill level of the team. The high commitment comes in when I come on board and say, now we got to decide how do we want to show up to mm-hmm. be team-like with each other? What's going to be our characteristic that we think is going to fit for us? And, you know, through activities, because this generation of athletes really learn from doing we will have them go through some really engaging activities that have nothing to do with their sport but everything to do with behaving team-like. Mm-hmm. And they might come up with, Anne, a total of maybe seven to eight behaviors that they decide this is how we want to show up. The beauty of this is I can then take our secret sauce recipe <laughs> and turn it into a 360 assessment. Uh-huh where we will do it three times this season at the start after preseason is over, and everybody will rate the team. And then the second round, we will do small learning groups and do talent review, where you might be with a group of two or three athletes, and you're actually evaluating each other on these secret sauce behaviors. Great. We'll do it on the coaches. The players will evaluate coaches, and we'll do it at the end of the season. Because the reality is some teams, you know, just – 
don't have a winning record. You know, they're mm-hmm. in one of these developmental years. But it doesn't mean you can't feel really good about the season and about wanting to come back and play for this team again. Yeah. Boy, oh, Roberta, you've said so much. And I, if I may, I'd like to just go back to your word talent for a minute. Yeah. And I was uh, caught by your uh, expression, a, a coach's delight to find maybe on the surface low talent but high commitment. Mm-hmm. This is, you use the word raw talent. Yeah. And what I'm hearing in your description is that talent isn't necessarily fixed. Am I hearing that right? That is correct. It is a, 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 a both an learned and innate behavior and motivation okay and and so this is this is the famous question and i know you because you're in this business the leadership business mm-hmm. is leadership born or made is talent born or made so mm-hmm. what what is your usual response to that question so interesting enough when people especially at the center for crave leadership which probably most of your listeners know about mm-hmm. um you know people will say are leaders born and my first response is well i've never met a leader that wasn't born <laughs> that's good <laughs> and you know if you think about the word leadership think about the last syllables of the word ship Le- mm-hmm. leadership is about actions mm-hmm. and actions can be taught we certainly come to the table both learning hardwired for certain preferences i can give a variety of assessment tools on decision making on authority, on trust, on prominence, on feedback that, that tells me kind of what is your natural style of highly you like to show up if you are leader for the day, leader for the season, leader mm-hmm. for the team. But it doesn't mean you can't learn new behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with talent. A, a lot of athletes today you know, they belong to all these clubs, mm-hmm. you know, and they pay a lot of money. They travel. They develop their skill set because their thought process, both themselves and their parents, is this will equal scholarship to college. Right. But the challenge is if you come to the program and you don't have these team-like behaviors, you're a landmine for the team. In the mm-hmm. organizational world, we call it organizational landmines. In the athletic world, we just call it landmines that you set up for other team members. And, you know, if you were to interview all the athletes around the world and say, you know, what are your biggest issues you have when even if the team has a winning record, it wasn't a, a season that you enjoyed. Mm-hmm. You're not excited about to play with these athletes again. Uh, they will say usually typical things like we didn't have a united commitment towards team goals. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of uh, inner team conflict that resulted in a lot of lack of trust, respect, and we weren't given the resources to be successful. Mm-hmm. So good. So let me remind everyone that you're listening to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. And tonight I have the real pleasure of speaking with Dr. Roberta Krauss. She is president of the Center for Sports Psychology in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And we're talking about athletics, teams, and leadership. Roberta, if I may, we've talked a little bit about that uh, quadrant on low commitment, uh, or high commitment, forgive me, and lower expression of talent. And let's talk a little bit about those landmines. And these these are athletes who are highly talented but have lower commitment to the team. Mm-hmm. And so I'm they show up, you know, to use your expression, yeah. they show up by being for example more interested in their personal stats mm-hmm. than the success of the team. 
are there are there other characteristic behaviors that you know you can see at a distance ah this is a this is a landmine yeah I, I would say that you know and not necessarily just coming from the player but what could set players up is you know there's a lot of rivals mm. so mm-hmm. they compete with one another now what's interesting about this is with any athletic team during any kind of preseason you're com- you're competing for a spot to start you're competing for a certain position, if you will, and you should be able to, as a coach, harness healthy competition that's both mm-hmm. collaborative and competitive. So that kind of falls sometimes on the coach, sometimes mm-hmm. because there's a lack of role clarity that players lose interest in the team and they're all confused of what does it look like. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we have athletes that come to the program and they actually have some issues that need some therapeutic clinical work. Mm-hmm. And I am very supportive of working closely to a therapist. I don't do therapy. I don't do counseling. I am a sports psychologist that works on consistent top performance. But sometimes because of who they are and what they're bringing to the table, um, they have issues that are a distraction for the team. Mm. Yeah, you make a really fine point here and one that I think our listeners will be familiar with. We've uh, we've interviewed a number of executive coaches mm-hmm. who will go out of their way to say that we are not doing therapy. Right. <laughs> we are coaching uh, executives on their leadership behaviors in the workplace. <laughs> now, in the event that there is more that needs to ad- be addressed, then we may recommend some additional counseling, but that is not what we do. And that's the same sort of stance that you take as a right. sports psychologist working working with a team. Yes, and I would just add to that, Anne, that, you know, I'm about tools and techniques. So when I get in front of a team for the first time, I tell them, here's what you need to know about me. I don't do kumbaya. I'm not into group <laughs> hugs. I don't do therapy. I'm not interested in what your relationship was with your aunt. I'm about consistent top performance. And as we go through and break that down, and there's some definite pathways that I go in, in working on that, um, I will tell you that the more I can get any performer, an executive I'm working with through the Center for Creative Leadership, mm-hmm. one-on-one, an athlete, a coach, the more I get them to use any techniques that we're working on outside of their performance arena, work, athletic field, the more they'll do them at work in the athletic field. Very good. So, so- I do like to believe that there is a transference of the skill they're learning because then we get two for the price of one. If, if I have an athlete that has a lot of presentation anxiety, I am going to work on techniques that's going to help with that, but also going to help with anxiety when they're taking a penalty kick to win the soccer match for mm-hmm. the Division Two title. <laughs> that's great. So, um, so I also you also made a nice point about how uh, if we have – that quadrant of uh, team player who, well, actually, I should say maybe uh, more of a landmine than a team player. You say that that can be the responsibility of the individual athlete, but it can also be the responsibility of the coach. And one of the responsibilities I'm hearing is the coach needs to set up what you've called healthy competition. Mm -hmm. So can you say a little bit more about what that looks like and what coaches can do? So a couple things about healthy competition. Um, 
I don't know a person, Anne, in the business world or the ethical world that doesn't want to come to their job and be challenged at their job. Right. You know, most people, when they go to work, they want to have fair working conditions. I don't want to work in a basement with, with halogen lights and no ventilation. Athletes want a nice athletic facility to go to work at. Mm-hmm. Most people want to have challenging work. Most people want to be given recognition for effort. And one of the challenges that I see that carries over from the performers in the work world, the performance athletic world, in the sense of coaches, is they don't do enough to challenge the athlete and then reward the athlete for Mm -hmm. effort. And it could be in recognition. It could be in more time on the field. It could be a leadership activity they have to do the next day. It could be an acknowledgement to the athlete in front of the whole team. But too many times we are always rewarding the outcome. Okay. <laughs> and this is about if you want to make it competitive and you want to make people hungry for competition, one, make sure that everybody on the team, again, worker athletics, knows that what I have to offer as an individual is so unique to this team. Mm-hmm. It could be a skill set. It could be something about my personality, my leadership. Mm-hmm. It could be the voice that I share. It could be my nonverbals. But make sure you're clear about what is my strength and more unique, my strength than everybody else, and then recognize me with my effort. Mm-hmm. Oh, so beautifully said, Roberta. Thank you. Yeah, so that it's uh, it's about the destination. It is about the outcome. That matters. But it's also about the journey and the process. <laughs> yeah, and that's a tough one, especially in the athletic world, because on one hand, Anne, I would guess that just because I've read your bio on the Wharton page, mm-hmm. you know about me, you know, um, when we did involve ourselves with any kind of club or sport, it was seasonal. You know, you had volleyball in the fall or, or cross country, and then you went into basketball. And now sports are all year round. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can do club sports at a very high level where you're getting private lessons. You're traveling all over the country. Parents are paying, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. And, and on one hand, you think, wow, what great opportunities. But on the other hand, we are asking kids to go to work for their sport mm-hmm. than to go and play their sport. Yeah. <laughs> and what happens is, is then I get to see them in middle school, high school, college, and they're already burned out. Right. So they've lost some competitive drive. And the parents are trying to live through their kids, live their mm-hmm. dream, and uh, it, not to even mention all the athletic injuries that kids are not having at a much younger age because we're asking them to specialize. So we've got to figure out a way both at work Mm -hmm. and in athletics, how do we keep what I call serious play Mm. in the competitive environment? Oh, good. Well, do you have a few tips on that? Oh, Anne, I'm so (laughs) glad you asked me that. I do, actually. I have a couple of tips. One is actually comes from the Center for Creative Leadership's research on uh, reinforcement, motivation, feedback. And what this says is, if I came to work for you as my boss, if I came to play for you as my coach, and you hired somebody like Dr. Roberta Krauss to just observe you as the coach or the boss and how you gave away feedback, hmm. I would most likely chart under two categories task-type feedback, 
and sort of relationship development type feedback. I do that in the business world, the athletic world. And I would chart, whether it be very informal, you and I are walking down the hall and you say, Robert, I'd like to give you because of feedback about your presentation, or the coach says, Robert, I want to meet you after practice and give me some feedback, whether it be formal and formal. Over a period of about three to four weeks, I would be able to log down a ratio of four very clear, vivid pieces of feedback that are about my strength to every one developmental challenge that I have. Ah, oh, so good. <laughs> when so, you do 4-1, and, yeah. and somebody new comes to the team and says, so what's it like to have Coach Ann you know, as the boss? What's it like to have Coach Ann as a head coach? They will say, oh, she's really fair. She'll give you as much positive as negative feedback. That's a 4-1. Mm. And yet most coaches, most business leaders are taught – what you and I know as a sandwich approach, you right. positive, negative, positive. That's a nice shirt you have on. You're fired. Why don't we have lunch next week? Yeah, exactly. Doesn't work. <laughs> oh, I just have to pick up your really wonderful words of wisdom. That traditional feedback sandwich, which is positive, negative, positive. So listeners out there, this is a really, this is a free tip abandon the feedback sandwich. <laughs> and instead, so Roberta, let's talk about what we're going to replace it with. We talked about a 4-1 ratio, Anne, whereas over a period of time, usually, you know, a three to five week window, if you were to either buy a recorder or have somebody observing you and writing down every time you gave away feedback, mm -hmm. Uh, it could be task-related or related about the relationship, the development side, that there would be this pattern from you as my leader, my coach, my boss, of four clear, vivid, positive pictures of what my strengths are that I bring to this team, to every one developmental challenge. When you do that, especially with the younger generation at work that have a very high need for positive feedback and don't know what to do with negative feedback, they will relate that 4-1 to only equal being fair, that you give as much positive or negative mm. feedback. Yeah, I think that's really important to underscore. So we're talking about 4-to-1 ratio, not 1-to-1 one -one to be fair, but 4-to-1 to be perceived as fair. And not to do four to one in one particular situation. So if you call me into your office, if you call me in after the field and want to talk to me, and I've got my hands in my lap or under the table, and I'm counting these four positive things you give me in a row, <laughs> then I'm going to duck my head because here comes the ding. This is over time. And if you as a coach, as a leader, can't, with all honesty and genuineness, because you don't make this stuff up, right. you can't give me vivid pictures four to one. Mm -hmm. You may be asking more of me than I am capable of delivering at this time. Yes. Okay. Now, and this is one of my hobby horses, so bear with me, Roberta. Uh, we tend to think about um, honest feedback mm -hmm. as being brutal <laughs> mm -hmm. and benevolent feedback as being insincere and untrue. Mm -hmm. And I think the challenge is giving honest feedback that is also benevolent. Mm -hmm. Do, giving feedback in a way that people can hear. Right. So making it concrete, as you said, you use the word vivid, having vivid pictures so that the feedback is genuine. It isn't mm -hmm. just about saying something nice. 
It's about saying something that the recipient can actually believe. (laughs) I think what you're hitting on, Anne, is for me, feedback that can be totally honest and totally kind at the same time. Right. And there's a process, if you'd like, I can share it to you and the listeners. Yeah. Should lead to a further conversation between you and I. The whole point of feedback is not to have it be a one-way communication where you give me a piece of very vivid feedback. I say thank you, and I walk out. It should lead to a conversation. So if the feedback is good, I want to be able to, because the way you presented it, feel so comfortable that I want to gauge you further about where can I do more of that? Where else have you seen that? Right. Is there a downside if I do too much of that? If it's negative, I want to ask, what would be a bit better behavior? Where else have you seen that? It should always lead to a coaching conversation. And there's a model that um, it comes in, in the stack of coaching cards that a, a group of colleagues and I uh, developed. Mm-hmm. And it's a model that we created that we call it SARA, S-A-R-A. Oh, great. Very simple. It simply means this, that when you and I sit down together, and first thing I'm going to start with is be very specific mm-hmm. about the exact situation. It was Tuesday after the team retreat meeting. It was Monday out on the field mm-hmm. after conditioning. It was during the time out at halftime. It was in the locker room after the game. It was going out to our cars after work. That, the beauty about starting with situation, which is the first acronym letter for Sarah, is you see people get that right pretty easily. Right. <laughs> and the beauty is I, as the receiver of the feedback, as soon as you say that, I start nodding my head going, I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the first anchor to get my attention. It doesn't need debating, explaining. And then we quickly move to the letter A in the word Sarah. And that is what you're doing is you are actually going to give me a picture of the action right. that mm-hmm. I did that was either helpful or not. But again, it's so important that when you deliver the action, you don't put judgment on it. Mm. You don't say you were very obnoxious. You say you interrupted the speaker three times right. with a loud voice. You say what, Anne, if we looked at a tape, right. <laughs> everybody around the world would agree you did just that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's so great. again, when you, when you get the action right, I, I won't debate it. I don't have to disagree with or argue because it is truth, mm-hmm. the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So now you've got my attention even more where I'm thinking now at the edge of my seat, good, bad, and, and you've got my full attention. And then the R part in the word, Sarah, is your reaction, the giver. And this is where you now have judgment in terms of how you felt. Mm -hmm. I felt pleased. I felt motivated. I felt devalued. I felt interrupted. I felt discounted. I felt motivated. I felt excited. And the beauty of that is when you say, I felt, or maybe Mm -hmm. I thought, you, the receiver, you can't talk me out of how I felt or thought. You don't get to own that. (laughs) So again, the defenses are down. Mm Mm-hmm. And once you've got that, then that usually leaves the motivation for the last letter in Sarah, the A, which is either what are alternative things I should have done if there needs to be, what's action I want to continue doing. And the person walks away feeling like this person really cares about my development. Yeah. Oh, that's really so great and so helpful. Uh, 
one of, you know, um, Marshall Goldsmith, who's mm-hmm. a very famous um, executive coach, has right. an expression that my students will, they will smile if they hear me say this on the radio, feed forward rather than feed back. And that alternative behavior is future-looking, forward-looking. Right. So it it gives people a sense of hope. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the word that I use, because I know exactly the book you're talking about that he wrote, and the word that, that I find that resonates more effectively to the athletic world is I call front-loading, mm-hmm. meaning me as the giver, whether I'm the coach or the captain of the team, because I spend a lot of time working with leadership skills for the captains, what can I do or say mm-hmm. with you, towards you, that creates the conditions so others can do their best work? Mm. So great. So thank you for that, <laughs> Roberta. That is so, so helpful. So now if I, you know, if I recall, you, you also describe a process in which you have three points in which you give feedback 360 assessments, preseason, middle of the season, mm-hmm. and at the end. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit more about that process? Yeah, and, and let me let me make it very specific and give you an example about captains. So oh, great. I, I insist that when a team brings me on that they are going to provide the resources, meaning the time for me to develop the leadership of captains. Because let's face it, just like at work, you get promoted to a leadership role usually because of what you've produced. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get voted captain of an athletic team because of your stats, because you're one of the veteran players. And yet we say, congratulations, you're captain next year. Congratulations, you've just been promoted to project manager. This is your team. And then we don't teach people how to manage and develop the team. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what I did with one of the college teams, they were at the time ranked 28th in the nation. Um, I'll keep their sport confidential. Okay. And um, they had a brand-new head coach, and um, we worked with the captain. I said to the captains, first of all, we got to identify what is going to be your key role as a captain. And just through some meetings and interviews with their players, they came up with sort of three major buckets. One is we got to be good at what we're going to call operational excellence. And this was stuff, and that the coach just said, you got to do this. Balls in the air, lights in the gym on, whatever it might be, right uniform, what time the bus is leaving. It's just check the box kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And we could make about six or seven items under that. The second category was team dynamics. How are you doing with handling conflict? giving athletes feedback, mm. um, engaging athletes, doing appropriate recognition, inclusion stuff, are you keeping too much distance, all the kind of stuff that you and I would probably call the teamware or software of a team. Yes. It's mm-hmm. the commitment stuff. Then the third bucket was what we called competitive edge. How are they showing up in competition? Okay. <laughs> so here's what happened, Ann. We, we, we were able to list the behaviors – Put it in a simple Likert scale, one to five, one being not at all, everything to number five being to a great extent. And then the players were invited to also add comments Mm. in writing. What do you want to see these captains continue doing? Do more of, do less of. Great. So I tabulate everything, and we, we did this right before we went to playoffs and had the three captains over for 90 minutes on feedback and I can honestly tell you the feedback was not good at all. Ooh, 
It was not positive. Okay. Both in the Likert scale rating and then all the comments. And what I did was I just tabulated everything, and then I combined all the comments from players and coaches. Okay. And here's how it worked. I said to the players, now tomorrow is your last team lunch before you get on the plane to the playoffs, regional playoffs for D2. You could get in front of your entire team and coaches and say, we just spent 90 minutes with Dr. Roberta. We got the feedback. Thank you very much. Here's one thing we're going to continue doing. Stop or start doing. And that's acceptable. It shows you got the feedback. With only two weeks left in the season, we don't want to say that you're going to do magic. This is good. The highest impact you could have is if you read out loud all the written comments that you got. Mm. <laughs> but that's also the highest risk. Mm. But that will create a, a rich feedback environment in exactly what you need going into the playoffs. Because mm. the skill level's there, but we have to have trust, openness. And uh, they did just that, and they wow. read all the comments and some tears came out, but the coach said that was the deal breaker. That was the game changer. Uh, they went on to become fourth in the nation. Oh, that's great. So great. Ah, oh, Roberta, wonderful. Now, can we talk a little bit about uh, translation, maybe first to professional teams, if you see one, and then focus a little bit on translation to the workplace? Okay. So, I just... Uh, Professional teams uh, are, by definition, different makeup. You know, there are players who are paid for mm -hmm. what they do. Do you see uh, some of the learnings that you have gleaned from your experience, especially at, with the collegiate athlete, to be helpful or applicable to the professional player and team? Great question. So definitely very applicable. What might surprise you is there's a lot less pro teams or pro athletes that use sports psychology than you would imagine. Part of that, Anne, is a stigma where coaches have said to me, I worked with one professional football, two professional football teams, and the coach said, the amount of money that these athletes make, they should be able to figure out their own mental challenges. Unless they're beating a girlfriend, wife, partner, spouse, hmm. or have a drinking problem, I'm not going to be doing this kind of work. They need to put their big pants on and, and do what they need to do, which is always surprising because nowadays, as we all know, you can join the professional ranks at a very young age. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, you've decided to forego college, and you're on a, a professional team that is traveling where you have athletes that can go out and drink and party, and you're still not even of age of drinking yet. Mm -hmm. And you haven't seen this much money in your lifetime so far, and we don't prepare the athletes well enough with the mental training. I had a professional football team tell me individually I need some help with my concentration, my focusing. Mm -hmm. um, I deal with so much anxiety, and yet the coaches don't recognize that as a need. Mm. And do you think that's rooted in just a uh, maybe a long-time stigma that we Absolutely. associate? Okay. Yeah. And there, I mean, there are some athletes that have been very public about using a sports psychologist in the professional world. And what I find interesting is typically the athletes that are already very good and want to stay good 
end up using a sports psychologist more than ones that are off their game. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's that embarrassment of feeling yes. that you need, you know, that you need the help. Right. Do you find, and just for fun, do you find any gender differences in receptivity? Uh, actually, not really. You know, interesting enough, um, I have worked with one of our Paralympic teams that won a gold medal in the London, I mean, the Rio Olympics 2016. Our men's, and this is public large, our men's wheelchair team mm-hmm. hadn't won a gold medal in 28 years. And I worked with them for a year and a half. And what's interesting, Anne, is, is through some assessments, like personality assessments, I learned that this particular team of 12 gentlemen were really, really high in scores on trust and disclosure and caring. I mean, they, they mm-hmm. really had a brotherhood. The women's team I was working with at the same time were not necessarily like that. And, and I can tell you that they embraced more of the team dynamic training than the women did. The women needed it more, but the men embraced it more. And and I have to give credit to the coaches of the men's team because they said to me, we will adjust our behavior for whatever these players need. And the coaches scored the lowest in the categories around trust, disclosure, carry. And and I have Hmm. to tell you, I watched those coaches, especially during practice sessions where we might break for a, a lunch and they pull all the guys in, will your chairs in here, guys? And right away, coaches want to go to, so we've got to work on this offense, we've got to work on this technique, and the coaches would catch themselves and they would stop. They would put their iPads down and say, <laughs> let me start over again, guys. We are really proud. <laughs> and the guys loved how hard they tried to do this. <laughs> they would, wouldn't they? And yes. what happened was, the closing of the story was, we were playing against a team. We had already qualified for the Olympics, but now we're qualifying for our, our ranking of how we're going to be r- ranked at the, at the Paralympics. And uh, we were playing a team. We were behind at halftime. And uh, typical MO, the coaches called timeout. They get together first. The captains wheel the athletes in a corner, and I always go with the players. And as we're walking, oh, wheeling over to the players, I said to two captains, I said, Mike, Steve, remember, we are about inspiration. We're about relating. Mm-hmm. We're about optimism, openness. We play our best basketball from the heart, not up here. Because the Cavs are ready to go into that huddle and say, we've got to watch player number three. We've got to shut this down. And they're like, Okay, got it. They got into that team huddle, and I won't use the exact words because we're on public radio. <laughs> right. <laughs> but they basically said, we got to take that ball and stick it up. And, and they got the guy so fired up. And the coaches <laughs> started to come over to talk to them, and the captain just said, coaches, we got this. Uh, and we turn around the momentum. So I don't think there's a gender difference. It's mm-hmm. about understanding what your athletes need. Oh, very good. Now, we're just going to pause and remind everyone that you're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall, and my guest this hour is Dr. Roberta Krauss, president of the Center for Sports Psychology. And if you'd like to join this conversation, there's still time. Please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. All right, Roberta. Maybe just a couple follow up questions. Uh, I uh, in our you know Mike, Jeff, and I are all uh, enthusiasts. I'm probably the one who is least knowledgeable about 
uh, athletes and sports, but I'm but I'm a good a good student and like like learning. What uh, how much impact do you think that coaches have at the collegiate level, and then just for fun, uh, the impact they have at the professional level? Yeah, so you know, coaches at at the professional level actually manage more than coach. Because by the time you get to be a pro athlete in any sport, you're so high-talented and high-committed that it's more about managing your emotions, mm-hmm. managing your energy, managing your you help your life outside of work. When you're coaching at a college level, you're still developing. And some of the lessons that, that I've been working with diligently the last couple of years with college coaches is to help them understand this generation of athletes that are coming to campuses to play for them mm-hmm. because they're not like their coaches and you know <laughs> they come with, with 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 a belief that i can solve my team challenges by texting versus <laughs> yes. face-to-face yes uh, they seek <laughs> constant feedback uh but it's more about positive recognition and they, they can be kind of stunned when they get negative feedback mm-hmm. um they expect the coach to show tremendous listening skills, dedication towards them as a person before they're going to buy into your sort of coaching philosophy. And then their attention span. So I I coach a lot of college coaches to rethink the amount of time they spend on any one drill and training because the the attention span for athletes today to give a coach 100% physical and mental attention in a drill is about 15 minutes at the most 50 or 15 15 one all right five one five Woo. so you know shorter time segments are important mm-hmm. i encourage coaches to think about different ways to do motivation uh do podcasts um if, if you're not a coach that's used to giving a lot of feedback because you have a mindset of no feedback is good feedback you know try to to, to set up some feedback team members in small groups, connect your younger athletes with the more senior athletes, uh, use all your coaches to establish kind of a mentor-mentee program, um, start a newcomers club for all the athletes at the sport, because athletes have a high need to kind of feel connected, to feel mm-hmm. self-fulfilled. And we didn't always have that when these coaches played sports. If the coach said jump, you just said how high. Mm, so good. So, Roberta, am I right in in hearing that when you uh, coach a team, that you're also coaching the coach? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Because because here's here's why I say yes. When you think about success at the end of an athletic season, at the end of a project at work, you know, we have three areas that we want to call success. One was, did we hit the goals? And both in the business world and the athletic world, we can measure that. And yes, we still treasure what we can measure. But there's two other variables that are important for success. One is, by me being a part of this team and you as my coach, Am I a a better skilled player for you next season? And am I a better human being because Mm -hmm. of my experience with you as a coach? And third, because of the way the coach created the climate, the culture on this team, you know what? I want to play and be with these athletes again next season. I want to play for this coach again. Mm. Yeah, and now here's here's a question. Do you think that uh, the changes in culture in the ways in which team members and the coach interact 
have an impact on performance? Absolutely, without a doubt. Now, here's a challenge with that. We have all become hypersensitive to inappropriate behavior by a coach with an athlete. Yes. A hypersensitive in the work world. And coaches need to understand that certain behaviors that were appropriate in the past might not be appropriate today. When I coached high school athletics, it'd be nothing if I left basketball practice and I'm driving home and there's a student from my health class, his name is Roger Smith, <laughs> and it's pouring rain out and he's walking home. And I would pour him and say, Roger, get in the car, I'm going to take you home. No, no, Roger, I'm taking you home. I would never do that today. Because mm, we want to be careful about crossing boundaries. Exactly. So understanding, you know, the whole what's acceptable behaviors, what's your intention behind the behaviors, coaches need to do a lot more front-loading with their athletes, why they're doing what they're doing, why they said what they said, and not assume that the athlete gets the right intention. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, and that amount of explaining might be more than coaches are accustomed to or managers are accustomed to. That's exactly correct, Dan. All right, well, Roberta, we're starting to come around. We've got about two minutes. So I'm wondering if we could do a little bit of a recap for our listeners and a recap with a translation in mind. So things we've talked about that would be super relevant to the workplace. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to let, I have some thoughts, but I'm going to let you lead. So I would, I would offer this for any person in the work world that is in a leadership position, meaning you're going to be influenced other people's behaviors. You know, make sure everybody on the team has a well-defined sort of visual picture of the goal. They have to understand how the work that they will be doing on this team relates to the bigger goal. Oh, very good. I think you need to, as a coach, develop – the ability for individuals to own feedback with each other mm -hmm. and be accountable with each other so they're mm -hmm. competent in both the skill they bring to the job but also in the relationship building. That can't always just come from the leader. Yeah, very good. And the last thing I would say, and this is really important for me, leaders come to a work environment somewhat learned and hardwired around certain decision-making styles, every one from D1 that says, my way, the highway, right. if I want you to have an opinion, I'll give you one to have, to all the way down to D5, where you make the decision because you're better at it, everything in between. Mm -hmm. And I would say that an effective leader is going to know when, one, that they should be using all the different decision-making styles and be able to know when this one's appropriate mm -hmm. versus this one. Yeah. Oh, boy. And hard to do, but the first step might be knowing your own, your own natural yes. predisposition. Your Where do you, your preferences? Where do you like to start? Absolutely. Very good. Well, and I'm going to add, if I may, uh, I think your thoughts about the high talent, low commitment, let's say employee, mm -hmm. absolutely, <laughs> or high commitment but maybe less talent employee. I think that is relevant to us all. Thinking about talent as something that is. Uh, capable for development. Mm -hmm. And then I really love your feedback acronym, SARA, right? Mm -hmm. Talking about the situation, talk about the action, talk about the reaction, and talk about the alternative future. Right. So, Roberta, thank you so much for joining me tonight on Leadership in Action. Stay tuned, listeners. We will be right back.
For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.